Hi, everyone. Welcome to Equalsight Space Techniques. Really delighted to have Nathan Johnson here, where Kion will be moderating. But before we get into it, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping with, I guess, two exciting announcements. One is, and I know that many of you here are aware, but perhaps not everyone, especially those that are afterwards seeing this on YouTube, that Foresight is having its first space workshop. At least, in, I think we had one 15 years ago, but that's according to our archives, so I think it's time to revisit this. And so this virtual group is really wonderful, but I think to, to actually get like going on long-term problems in space and opportunities, it's always nice to open personal events. And so Kuyan uh, and I will be hosting a workshop at 50 years in San Francisco, getting people in this group. And if you're watching this on YouTube, there's still time to apply together to kind of like tackle the more kind of long-term opportunities in space. So we have a really wonderful list already of folks that will be coming and presenting. So whenever you see a talk title, this means that they're representing. And it's everything from kind of like near-term opportunities in space to the kind of like very long-term theoretical considerations of how we can mine black holes and so forth. So it really has something in there for everyone. If you feel interested in joining, especially if you're part of the seminar group and see this afterwards, then just feel free to hit the application form here, apply. Uh, we will then have a short talk about your contributions uh, and then you should be ready to go. Also, this workshop is June 5 and 6. So it's pretty much in a few weeks from now. And so if you are interested, then I think now is the correct time to, to apply. And so the idea is that any projects that come out of this that may be developed can then also find its way back into this virtual room where you can continue collaborating. And we have some kind of initial heat funding of a small scale, but nevertheless, hopefully enough to like get you excited about continuing the projects available. So that's one thing I want to say. Second thing I want to say is that we have the Fawcett Fellowship applications open and I'm saying this because Nathan is a Fawcett Fellow this year. Uh, and so it's really exciting that we have you on board this year. It's our first year with a dedicated space fellowship. Uh, and if you're interested in being supported uh, basically through the space fellowship, then now is a great time to apply. You can take a list, like, like a look of, of our fellows this year through this document. And if you think that that's like an interesting cohort and you feel like relatively along the same line, then this Fawcett Fellowship is potentially for you. It basically comes with a lot of like individual mentorship, presentation opportunities like this one, invitations to our workshops that are travel paid, uh, and then potentially some funding further down the line. Anyway, that's all for me for housekeeping. And it's a great segue of introducing to you our speaker for today, which is Nathan. Nathan, I'm so delighted that we have you here. You are a nomination by someone that we all hold very dearly. So thanks a lot for joining. And yeah, uh, I would say take it away. I'm going to share more info about you also in the chat. But thanks, everyone, for joining. This can be as interactive as you want to make it. Uh, Kreon, if you do want to say a few words, you're welcome to. But you can also just chime in with questions. No, I think Nathan and I have queued up his talk outline and stuff like that. So let's just move on it. All right. Thank you, Kreon. By way of introduction, again, my name is Nathan Johnson. And I'm speaking today as co-founder and executive director of the Space Corps Foundation. Uh, the Space Corps Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit promoting space law education and the rule of law. And I'm also a practicing attorney. And as for my day job, my views and opinions are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of my employer. And I should also note, as a practicing attorney, nothing I say today should be taken as legal advice. 
all that out of the way, I'm actually here to talk about the universe of space law. And I chose to title this as cosmology of space law because I don't see space law as any one thing. I think of it as a universe of interactions between celestial bodies or bodies of law, planetary systems or systems of regulations and clusters of law. Plus, space analogies are just inherently fun and cool. So I'll start with the history of space law. Where did it begin? It can be kind of a fuzzy thing, but I think a really concrete point to start thinking about it is the International Geophysical Year, 1957 and 1958. And as a goal for the International Geophysical Year, of course, Russia and the United States, the two powers closest to launching things into space, were racing to launch the first artificial satellite. And so, as we all probably know, Sputnik 1 launched on October 4th, 1957. And not only did this kick off the space race, but it kicked off the international discussion about how the countries would react to laws in outer space. Right after the launch of Sputnik, the United Nations established an ad hoc committee on the peaceful uses of outer space. And just two years later, they made that committee permanent. And that's how we get UN COPUS, Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Uh, Spacecraft Foundation is also doing a project on a man that we're calling the first practicing space lawyer, Andrew G. Haley. And by 1957, he had assumed the presidency of the International Astronautical Federation who were having their annual meeting October 4th. And so in his opening speech as president, he was already a lawyer. He was already somebody who was thinking about the laws of outer space. He also called on the IAF to establish a temporary committee to discuss space law. And particularly because of Sputnik, the delimitation between airspace and outer space. And the UN itself made their temporary committee a permanent body called the International Institute of Space Law, of which I am also a member today. So 1957 and 1959 was a real genesis of talking about space law as something specific and not just academic. You actually had countries doing activities in outer space. You had the possibility of those interactions out there. And so I would claim that that should be the Big Bang beginning of space law. And so immediately you have the United Nations getting involved. You also have the International Telecommunications Union getting involved because while only a couple of countries could launch things in space, you would start having more and more satellites in outer space and possibly more countries trying to procure services from these satellites in outer space. And so the ITU said, well, we should really expand what we oversee to include radio waves in space and between geo and and the ground. So the ITU gets involved. And the ITU, I was fascinated when I learned, actually predates the United Nations by some 70, 80 years or so. And once the United Nations was formed, the ITU agreed to be absorbed into the United Nations as a special agency of the UN. Why don't you briefly say some of the ITU's responsibilities? Yeah, so the the ITU started with, of course, ground-based communications and that. But once we get to wireless, and especially once we get to wireless between the ground and orbit, they started to 
regulate what frequencies and what frequency ranges could be used by different services. And so they have what to me is, and, and I'm a lawyer, is a ridiculous table of allocations for all these very, very small frequency bands that they've carved up. And so some frequency bands are, are reserved for satellite telecommunications services. Some are reserved for federal use. Some are reserved for things like NASA to communicate with their satellites or do interplanetary communications. And other frequency bands are reserved for things like Earth exploration, space systems, remote sensing. They operate in specific bands. And so we still work in that table of allocations today to hopefully decrease interference as much as possible between radically different uses. Um, Some of them have to be assigned to particular users, as in the FCC will auction off some spectrum use for U.S. licensed companies. Other parts of the spectrum or on a non-interference basis, it's sort of a, a free-for-all. Users aren't assigned a specific specific channel, but they do need to coordinate with each other when there is interference so that they can share that part of the spectrum. So that was an early instance of an international body promulgating rules for the use of spectrum, right? It wasn't necessarily a treaty. And in particular, the ITU also sort of assigns or gives out the slots in GEO. And there's a question about how can the ITU really enforce use of positions in GEO. But it's been a system that countries have followed because for the most part, it's nice to know if you send a satellite up to geo, you've got a spot where you can park it and not be interfered with. So again, it's not necessarily a law, but it is a system of practice that most countries, if not all, have abided by. And more or less, it's worked. We've been able to use the geo arc for all sorts of satellite services. But you wouldn't necessarily think of it if you were thinking of space law in a very, very strict sense. But it is a system of governance and regulation that has enabled a greater use of orbit and space resources. And then we've got these committees, the UN Committee on Peaceful Uses Outer Space, 1959, and they start developing principles or they start suggesting general assembly resolutions. And by my emphasis, I don't mean to say that they meant nothing, but they are sort of pronouncements and soft law and suggestions. But slowly through these principles and resolutions, they were building up to the first space treaty called the Outer Space Treaty, short name. And the Outer Space Treaty, as one of the foundational texts of space law, really establishes some of these outlines. And one of the first things it establishes is that space law, as it were, still exists within public international law. So all the laws that already governed state-to-state interactions on the ground, space law isn't a brand new system of laws or anything. It still exists within what those countries have been doing, but it creates some new exceptions or some new conditions that are unique to the space domain. And I think thinking of it in terms of international law, one of the unique 
or one of the surprising aspects to many people is realizing that the Outer Space Treaty doesn't really talk about individuals because the treaty is about how countries or states interact with each other. It's all about state to state. So as we talk later on about liability, if SpaceX, a private company, any private company, I shouldn't single one out, were to drop a rocket body on a country under the Outer Space Treaty, that country can't claim against an individual or a company. All that country can do is bring their claim to that company's regulatory nation. And so it really is, again, about state-to-state interaction. And I want to make that part clear. Also, the treaty came out in 1967, so it's likely influenced a lot, A, by the Cold War and the nuclear arms race, and B, by the Antarctic Treaty, which was passed in 1959. So we have a few domains on the Earth that we can compare space law to. One of those would be law of the sea. Right. There's no individual nation that owns the sea or parts of the sea. They only own a certain amount past their coastline. And the Antarctic was also a place where it said no individual nation state can claim ownership over a part or over all of Antarctica. So the Outer Space Treaty sort of said the same thing. No nation state could claim ownership of the territory in orbit, on the moon, or in other celestial bodies of space. Yeah, Priya. Perhaps you're going to get to this. We discussed it earlier. However, there are some distinct differences between the activities uh, that are allowed and prohibited in the Antarctic Treaty as opposed to the space treaties. Yeah, there there are a lot of differences, and I usually primarily attribute attribute them to the different aspects of the physical domain, right? So Antarctica, law of the sea, you don't really have to worry about orbit or con- constantly traveling at an orbital velocity just to stay up, right? And there's certain aspects of traditional 2D versus 3D thinking in those arenas as well. The effects of something going wrong in space expanding in a way that would be different than those things happening on Antarctica or on the surface of the ocean. So there there are differences, but they're the closest things we have to compare to. Also because they've existed longer And there have been more events in those domains to cause a legal reaction than there have been in space. And that's one of the other things about space law. People are like, oh, is space law really real? No, we haven't necessarily had a case adjudicated in a court about space law. We've come close. But it has created these expectations for the actors who are in space. And for the most part, people have been abiding by that. That created a set of norms. And if people have been following it, just because it hasn't been adjudicated in a court yet, doesn't mean it's not working. It's created these expectations for how people interact with each other. Okay, but before we move on, is it not the case that, at least when comparing the Antarctica Treaty to the Outer Space Treaty, that, for instance, resource extraction Commercial resource extraction is prohibited in Antarctica, but it is not prohibited by the Outer Space Treaty on the moon, in orbit, on asteroids, or anywhere else. Is that true? So I think it might be more explicitly addressed 
in the Antarctic Antarctica Treaty than in outer space. And resource extraction in particular is an area that is actively being discussed and worked on right now in the international community. The United States published a law in 2015 saying that U.S. actors in space would have ownership of any of the resources they extracted. But another part of that law says that nothing in this law will contradict international law, right? So, A, since we don't currently have a lot of resource extraction going on in space, it's a law that's lying fallow. But two, it was sort of making sure that that option was in there whenever the international community has to decide how they view resource extraction in outer space. And one of the reasons I'm hedging it is because there are multiple arguments, both for ownership of extracted resources and against it as well. And I'll get to that in just a a few more moments. But right after the Outer Space Treaty, there were three more treaties that sort of just elaborated on aspects of the Outer Space Treaty. That included the Liability Convention, which which is concerned with how states would have to repay each other for either damage in space or on the ground. The Rescue and Return Agreement, which had to do with how countries would treat each other's astronauts. Think of it most vividly as if Apollo astronauts had to land or accidentally landed in Russia in the 1970s, that Russia would need to return those astronauts safely to the United States. And the um, capital. Say again? And their spacecraft. Yes, yes. Spacecraft, I think, has a little more emphasis on having to pay back reasonable fees that the other country expends in returning that. I think the people one is is a lot more clear. It's just like a, a plane ticket, right? But yes, the spacecraft is included in that rescue and return. Um, and then there's also the registration convention, which is about being open and keeping track of these objects that are in space to, again, reduce conflicts and also reduce potential interactions or or crashes in space. Okay, so on that topic, which is near and dear to my heart, is there a treaty obligation or some kind of multilateral agreements on sharing data about space tracking of objects. We have this whole collision avoidance and conjunction alert thing as a commercial satellite company where I work and NASA and all sorts. But the Russians have their space situational awareness network. The Americans have theirs. The Europeans have theirs. The Japanese have theirs. The Chinese have theirs. In my experience, the amount of data sharing was was marginal at best. Is there any sort of agreement about data sharing of space situational awareness data, particularly orbital elements and that sort of thing? No. So what the registration convention says is that when you launch an object out into space, and I think the details you have to provide in that registration are are pretty minimal, you have to give that to your licensing state, and then your licensing state needs to also deposit it with the secretary of the UN. And so there's an obligation to register those objects. But what do you do afterwards? I think the impetus for actions afterwards is 
you don't want to be liable for a crash. And so I think countries voluntarily, ideally, will communicate those things to their partners where they see a possible conjunction maybe upcoming because they want to avoid the liability of it afterwards. So there's no initial commitment, but I think there's self-interest in wanting to communicate that. So Outer Space Treaty, Liability Convention, Rescue and Return Agreement, Registration. There's a fifth treaty that's often mentioned in this bunch. All of these happened over a course of 10 years. The Moon Treaty. The Moon Treaty is the least successful of these treaties, has the least countries signing on to it, in part because the Moon Treaty does explicitly talk about resource extraction. And one of the things it proposes is an international body to perform the transactions of that resource extraction because they would want to share those proceeds with all the countries of the world because the moon belongs to everyone on earth. You could see why particularly Western capitalist countries would not want to sign on to the moon treaty and thus have to automatically submit their sale of resources from the moon to this international body, which would distribute them to everybody. So that's one place where resource extraction is specifically addressed. But again, so few countries have signed it, and especially so few countries with the capability to get to the moon have signed it, that it doesn't really affect anybody right now. I mean, that obviously not only would decrease the incentives to do resource extraction in space, at least the financial incentives, but it would bring up all sorts of weird things. Like if you go to the moon and you mine water to make propellant to launch your own self back from the moon, what do you, do you have to pay everybody in the world because you extracted the water? It's kind of ridiculous, or maybe I'm overthinking it. I might need to take a closer look at the moon treaty, not because I completely disregarded and have never looked at it in detail, but because there might be exclusions for use on the celestial body, right? So if you're just using those resources to make sure you don't die and you're not selling them on a terrestrial market, it may not apply. There. Thank you. Yeah. But this brings me to another point about treaty law, because we're about to close this up. Treaties actually only apply to those countries who have signed it. So it's basically a set of rules where if you want to be treated a certain way, you have to also treat other countries that way. So that's the incentive for people to sign a treaty, right? I want the benefits and the protections as this treaty provides, but in return, I will provide the same to the other signatories. So treaties really only affect countries who have signed them. The next step beyond that is something called customary international law, which we'll get to in a little bit. Okay, but one quick question on that, or maybe you'll get to this. Are there any significant spacefaring nations who have not signed? Well, the Moon Treaty, you already said, is undersigned, but say the Outer Space Treaty itself. As new nations get space capability, have they, like China, for instance, have they tended to sign on? What are the statuses of of the various sort of post-Apollo spacefaring nations? the success rate is very, very high. It seems that every new nation that develops a launch capability or procures the launch of an object signs onto the Outer Space Treaty as as due course. 
So the Outer Space Treaty is is maybe one of the most successful treaties out there. So yeah, and you might hear stories about some countries posturing, saying that they want to withdraw from the treaty because now they think they might be able to defend themselves without the protections that the treaty preserves. But yeah. So I want to go back to the treaties. The next step after treaties is the domestic laws that those treaties make countries enact. So the Outer Space Treaty in particular requires countries to authorize and continuously supervise the activities of their nationals. And remember, this treaty was passed in 1967. And one of the things that some historians point out was that the Russians, they probably did have a concept of private enterprise, but as part of their countries, they don't have private activities in outer space. All activities from the Soviet Union are of the Soviet Union. So they maybe wanted to put this element in for America and other Western countries who had private enterprises. And so they wanted to make sure that countries were always on top of those private entities who may be conducting space activities. And so this authorization and continuing supervision is where we get things like the FCC licensing the use of radio spectrum for rocket launches, for satellites, and for on-orbit activities between satellites. And of course, the FCC also has to abide by the table of allocations from the ITU. This is where we get NOAA and the Commercial Remote Sensing Regulatory Affairs Office licensing private remote sensing satellites. Again, it's a space activity and it flies over international bodies. And so the U.S. has to authorize and continuously supervise that. And then we also have the FAA Commercial Space Transportation Office, which explicitly licenses rocket launches and reentries. They authorize those things and they supervise those things. We also have, aside from domestic laws, more principles stated or General Assembly resolutions from the UN, including, again, principles on remote sensing. I think published sometime around 1986 or so that basically said, yeah, if you can't tell someone not to use outer space and they have a remote sensing satellite, that's how it's going to fly over another country and you'll be able to take pictures of that other country. And the principles say that you can't really stop someone from taking that picture. But the compromise, the return is that those sensed countries can request those images of their own land for a reasonable fee on a non-discriminatory basis. So again, treaties flow down into domestic law, and that's where you actually get law regarding individuals and individual claims. And now we can get to customary law. As I said, treaty law only applies to those people who sign that treaty. But customary law is when a practice of law becomes so common that you can say that All countries have to abide by it. And so you're basically collecting a history of countries taking an action or according to a law, plus something called opinio juris, or the opinion of that country that the reason they're abiding by this rule is because they think they have a legal obligation. And so the more and more countries who combine a state action enforcing some legal obligation on themselves, plus a stated opinion that they're doing it because they think it should be a legal obligation. Enough of that history put together 
that can make it customary international law and apply to countries without them having to sign a document saying that they abide by that rule. I see hand raised. That's you if you want to just kind of finish your talk or if you already want to start taking questions. We have also a bunch in the chat, but I'm monitoring them. Okay. And I, yeah, look. I have two or three to start things off if we want. They're short. Yeah, I, I guess audience questions towards the end, if that's all right, Zaheer and Creon. So do you, do you want to cover any one more major point or should we go to the interactive portion? I did want to cover some of the new examples of applying law or creating law in space and some of the issues that are upcoming. Great. So I've talked a lot about legal systems and regulations and things like that, but there are other ways to make these agreements that rule activities. So for instance, the International Space Station, there is no treaty for the International Space Station. There is a contract though. That contract between the nation partners of the space station lays out certain things like whose laws will apply in whose modules of the space station. And the space station crew has a hierarchy. And so it also lays out how people are obliged to follow the orders of the commander of that specific mission on the space station. So another way to create space law is through Contracts, which contracts even more explicitly than treaties, contracts definitely only apply to the people who enter into them. And we also have soft law, again, like UN resolutions and principles, soft law can be stations who put nations who put out things like orbital debris rules. And they might just be just a statement of orbital debris rules. And they might just ask certain space agencies in other countries to agree to these orbital debris rules or whatnot. And that's what we call sort of soft law, things that happen through practice. And then we have are those other... Like, are, those, are those the same? Is that where we put the guidelines, like Konopus guidelines and things like that? Yeah, guidelines. Words that are explicitly not treaty or law, right? So guidelines, exactly. And then we have other unique ways, again, going to contracts for nation states to sort of enforce protections. I'm thinking of the Google Lunar X Prize and the Apollo 11 site. Um, and I believe, Creon, you said that you were involved in early discussions about how to protect the Apollo 11 landing site from private rovers. And the way NASA went about excluding people from the Apollo 11 site, because again, Outer Space Treaty says you can't claim ownership over territory. You can't exclude people from it, they used a cash incentive prize. They said, all Google Lunar X Prize participants, we want you to take pictures of the Apollo 11 site. We'll give you a cash bonus if you do it. However, one of the parameters of taking those photos is you have to maintain a specific distance away from the landing site. So please don't drive over it. So they found a way to try to incentivize that sort of protection over their sites. In our team, when we were having some initial brainstorming about this at NASA Ames, we even envisioned or fantasized, I should say, we put a dome over the Apollo 11 site and tour, lunar tourists can come up to the edge of the dome and peer in and walk around it. Kind of what they tried doing with Stonehenge after everyone started carving their initials into it. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember if that's what they did in Futurama by the year 3000, had a dome over all those sites on the moon. And um, 
interesting discussion, by the way. I want to just mention two quick things about that because you've answered almost all the questions that I have I have put in here. So, yeah. So Apollo 11 is an interesting one that we might want to keep pristine and perhaps Apollo 17 as well, the last Apollo landing site. But then there's interesting other sites like Apollo 12 where they landed really close to this other unmanned lander which had landed earlier and they went over to it and they ripped off a bunch of pieces and brought them back to Earth for analysis. So the Apollo 12 site is kind of like maybe there's precedent for anybody can go there and grab pieces and bring them back because we can look for long duration exposure activities and stuff. So it's an interesting topic, but there's no law. No, there's no law. Although I will say back to the Outer Space Treaty and the Registration Convention, if that was NASA ripping off parts from a NASA rover, that's fine. But once a country launches an object and they're supposed to register it, that country maintains jurisdiction over that object. So there's no law of salvage in outer space. So if another country were to land on the moon and find a rover that's not theirs, they would have no right to remove parts from it for study and inspection because that other rover would still belong to its country of origin. Right. I could imagine, though, NASA actually letting contracts to all sorts of players, even international players, to go and retrieve parts from the surveyor do or whatever it was that they already retrieved parts from. That's that. Okay, that's a contract. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you my last question, and then we'll open it up to the audience. So my last question is, in your mind, what is, we have this body of law and agreements and soft law, but things are changing now. And it's a different world in space than it was when these agreements were drafted, and it's going to get more different soon. What is what are the high priority items in your mind that need to be addressed through, say, new agreements or new protocols or new guidelines? Yeah, and that was what I already had on the, the end of my, my outline. So this is a perfect question. Space traffic management and space situational awareness. That's a priority, right, for everybody. So much so that as individuals have been thinking about it, they keep changing the acronym, Right. So the U.S. was using space traffic management for a while, and that sounded too overbearing. Uh, so they're like, okay, fine. What about space situational awareness? What about a set of rules that you get to follow, but you also have to maintain right the awareness of it and then have an agreed set of principles about what to do when there is a possible conjunction? And we already have some of that in practice, but again, the scale of activity that's increasing in orbit is going to eventually overcome this ad hoc event by event approach. So that that's one of the that's one of the main ones. And I actually wrote my LLM thesis about comparing solutions to space conjunctions with the rules in the law of the sea. And again, I apologize. The law of the sea, I think one of the rules is if two ships are coming at each other, they agree to turn the same direction to avoid a conjunction. But in space, do you really have that many situations of a head-on-head collision? And then as well, because the Earth spins in one way, right? Everybody should be flying in one direction. You also can't have them turning 
the same way. They might have to turn different directions. Someone might need to lower their orbit. Someone might need to raise their orbit to avoid a conjunction. So those are sorts of unanswered questions about what the best practice would be. So I think that that's that's number one. The second is lunar resources, right? Because that's the closest to private activity. I don't think, I don't know if private enterprise is going to skip the moon and go straight to Mars, but we've got the moon closest to us. And so we've got individual companies that want to go to the moon. We've got different activities suggested for going to the moon. So how do we address that? And uh, I saw in the chat, someone mentioned for All Moon Kind, another nonprofit group, which is trying to establish world heritage sites for those landing sites on the moon, trying to add a protection explicitly that's not currently there. There are another group associated, I think, with a lot of us is the Open Lunar Foundation, and they formed the Breaking Ground Trust. Um, again, tr- they're trying to affect policy by creating precedent, by creating a history of practice of states saying that they will do this because of this obligation. So can they create that precedent of lunar resource extraction and and help embody that in law? And then I think the third thing is courts of choice for space disputes. Now, the Space Court Foundation is named that as more of a conceit or a theme. We don't actually propose ourselves becoming a court of adjudication. But we do think that eventually a court will be needed that specializes in space activities. And we've actually seen one created in Dubai, the Dubai Courts of Space. The interesting thing about that is that they are part of Dubai's uh, financial arbitration courts. So the focus would be on finances, adjudicating a disagreement between parties regarding finances that are owed. And again, just like space law exists in international law, arbitration and financial arbitration exists within standard terrestrial arbitration systems, which Dubai is a party to a number of those arbitration treaties and conventions. So the specialized courts, I think, would be another major one for when we foresee that, again, the scale of activity will make interaction between actors necessary. All right, I guess we're ready for audience questions. Perhaps those... We are ready. We had internet questions so far. Jerez, then Micah, then Zaire, then Manu. If we go via first chat, and then Jared, if you want to mute. Well, this would have been typing questions as they've been going on. Some of the things that I was talking about, he mentioned clearly. I'm a big proponent of applying maritime law whenever possible. I believe a lot of this has been litigated and thought about. The only thing that's different is a Z-plane, and even the Z-plane is included when you have submarines and submarine, submarine conjunctions and submarine debuoy and under a sea pipeline to submarine. So a lot of these things have already been litigated that and that there, there are conventions that will call civilized people who will follow. And I think that civilized people will continue to, to be civilized and go down Nathan's path. But I believe that the problem that we're looking at as a community is by people who will not comply and a few players who will not comply or will comply today and not comply tomorrow. Unlike the maritime situation where a conjunction results in a shipwreck, which sinks to the bottom of the ocean, thereby becoming a non-threat, this shipwreck never goes away. So you have the situation where the Chinese said, we're going to go ahead and test our anti-satellite rocket 
and we're going to test it on a real satellite. Oh, wow, it made a big debris cloud, which is still expanding even now. So then the Russians did the same, and somebody else is going to do the same. It's only a matter of time before India can prove that it can do it as well. Because nothing, They already have. Well, there you go. So nothing says deterrent like here we've just done it. And so I, I believe that and many people, I've been talking to the military guys a lot, and a lot of them don't like to talk about this, but I think we have to, which is warfare will will wipe all of this away. Everything that you're talking about will just go away. And and so how do you how do you mitigate something that will probably happen? Hopefully in the long term, maybe never. But people are thoughtless, and so history is a guide it was only it will be only a matter of time so well, i think one, one thing we might want to do and add to your list nathan of priority items of course is an anti-satellite weapons ban treaty and kind of the like, united states is is actually like, already leading a yes we are, you can't even say it the guys in the military won't even say these things and i and and i speak and i say i can say it because you can't and no and they appreciate it because they're thinking it and uh, but but the truth is, Creon, the Chinese will not honor any such ban. Well, wait a minute. We have a nuclear test ban treaty. Are the Chinese part of that? Yes, and I don't believe they've honored it 100% either. I can comment nor on do that I believe they, nor do I believe Russians they, and Chinese do not honor it, and we know that for a fact. Well, there you go. And then they also use their direct know-how, hands-on, to provide another nation who is particularly belligerent, like North Korea, with the direct manifest applicable technology to actually create and so this will this will be a problem. But you mentioned something, Creon, about a, a, an international space tracking agency. So I mentioned earlier that in maritime law, if somebody left out their dragnet and they, they, they were fishing and it got tangled and they just abandoned it, and then you hit it and it and it screws up your your motors, your your responsibility is to find out who owned that dragnet, where did it come from? And so there are agencies and satellite companies and, and so forth that will help you find out where that dragnet came from, at least to a high probability. And then if you actually have pieces of it, you can analyze it and then nail down with 99.9 plus percent certainty, this is where it came from. So something like that does not exist at all in space. So you can have conjunctions where things are hitting and go ahead. Well, so there is a law regarding that, the liability convention says that for damage caused in space, it's fault-based. Whoever's fault caused that in-space collision is, is liable. But the challenge then is you can't really drive an investigation team up to orbit, catch those pieces to perform an investigation on whose fault it was. So there's the fidelity of data to be able to prove that. But you can, but you can develop a finer and finer map of what's there. And then if something new gets introduced, it will be a simple matter. I'm assuming higher and higher resolution tracking is, is performed. It'll be a simple matter to decide what new debris has been introduced, when was it introduced, and from that you can come down to a causation factor. And then the debris itself will forever be tracked and well, know well, who owns it. The U.S. The U.S. space catalog, at least the non-classified versions, and presumably classified woefully inadequate it it doesn't cover like fuel clouds it doesn't cover a lot of things and i've talked i'm actually this is my business now creative i don't know if you know that 
but I'm in, I'm in situational awareness in space and computer vision for autonomous space operations. It's what I do for the past year now, and hopefully I get my phase two and I'll do it for another year. So I, my, my thinking is to put this catalog on every single operating spacecraft that had maneuver capability. And that, yeah. that just like you wouldn't let a ship go out of harbor or go away from a coast unless they had navigation maps and had radios and the ability to, and radar and the ability to, to navigate amongst the other ships and the ability to course correct. There are more and more autonomous spacecraft that are going up that have sufficient fuel to change their orbit. Before it didn't matter. Once it went up there, it's stuck in that orbit. And maybe it turned its eyeballs, looked one way, or turned its eyeballs, or turned. I don't mean to. I don't mean to be rude, Jared, but we do have a number of other questions. All right, that's what I wanted to talk about. Twelve minutes, so let's move on. Michael, you're next. I just wanted to know if anyone has ever actually broken the laws of the ISS, and if so, was there an enforcement or or not? It seems like. Small groups of humans in confined spaces together tend to get along. So I'd be relatively surprised to learn that that actually is needed. Yeah, I I can't point to an explicit enforcement history. I think there have always been rumors or stories about things that have happened between members on, on station. But I think I think there was one case of an astronaut checking their spouse's email from the station. So that might almost just be like privacy law, but that wasn't between members of both on station. So yeah, I can't speak to the the sort of criminal history there, although I think there is a fascinating comic book about a murder on the station. <laughs> wasn't okay, there thanks. a potential sabotage? The hole that was drilled, maybe? I don't know how far that went in terms of an investigation and, and actual enforcement on anyone. We have here. I think you may have dropped the diary. Why didn't you go? I have a question regarding this private state economy, because when I listened to your presentation, one interpretation could be to say there is no true private activities in space. And then uh, Creon was cut enough to say, well, you have Starlink, SpaceX, you have Planet Labs. But legally speaking, are they represented by United States or can they represent, them, represent themselves in the international court of law? In the case of some sort of dispute, could you could you kind of elucidate this this potential dichotomy, and kind of so I can understand exactly how would Planet Labs defend themselves in court? Would they do it through the United States, or they would be able to do it? Well, first, I won't speak for Planet Labs, but I can treat the question as a hypothetical between companies A and B. Hypothetically, I apologize. I, I, I'm not connected with Planet Labs. I'm just <laughs> using them as an example. I don't want to be illegal. Too, but hypothetically. Yeah, so two companies, A and B, both from different countries. The, the Outer Space Treaty says in the Liability Convention that the country of A is the liable party to the country of B. So it would sort of come down to would the two companies agree to a court of law, say the Dubai courts of space, treated as just a financial arbitration matter? And then B, would those two countries feel confident that those countries wouldn't drop out and then leave the country state hanging as a party, right? So if country A is liable, if company A is liable, 
And then company A says, no, we're bankrupt. Sorry, we're not going to pay. And company B says, country A, you're responsible under international law. I'm coming to you to pay the bill. It's, it's a matter of who's confident and how they'd be able to you know, satisfy the liability. Would those countries be comfortable with that? And it's not necessarily a question that has presented itself yet. So we don't quite know how individual countries would respond to it. Is there a possibility that a, that a private, let's say, for instance, if a piece of Chinese debris from their ASAT test wrecks one of Planet Lab's satellites, let's ignore the question about maneuverability for the moment, because that makes this more complicated. But do you think, is there any legal avenue to, for Planet Labs as a commercial entity to try and get compensation? as opposed to Planet Labs as a U.S. government-regulated national So, act. again, I won't answer for Planet Labs. Right. But, I, again, I think that because, ideally, both countries are authorizing and continuously supervising these activities, they would become aware of this incident pretty quickly. And, again, I think the countries, because they are liable under international law would want to get involved and manage the resolution of of that case because again they wouldn't want two private companies accidentally creating a bad precedent that their countries really don't want to abide by i see all right so alice is still there all right i am here do we want to finish up with the last question or two that would be wonderful. If you want to go, Ben or Manuel, I'll go. Hey, Nathan. I was at Planet Labs for five years before you got there. So I was, did, did a long stretch of Planet. And now I'm, I have a question about planetary protection, but also just like being a responsible actor in space. The company I'm building, we're sending, the first mission is DNA seed banks to the moon with DNA of all different species. So it's like an off-world backup. But the bigger thing we want to do is take steps and be thought leaders and responsible actors towards humanity spreading life in the universe and actively sending seeds out, out into the solar system. And, you know, we don't want to go just contaminate Mars and, and do it, but we also want to take agile steps and, and be leaders in that direction. And we are on a deep space mission that'll fly by a asteroid and go out of the solar system. And we're not putting DNA on that one. We're just putting data, but, you know, there is part of us that wants to put DNA on that. And, but we want to take the steps, but also be agile. And anyway, thought, thoughts on that. Yeah. First, not legal advice. Two, the place where some actors have gotten in trouble before is not being transparent and not being forthright with government regulators. So using the U.S., for example, not only does the FAA issue a license for that rocket to launch, but they also perform a payload review of the payload that that rocket is launching. So they're not explicitly licensing the payload. This is a big question for the U.S. government right now, including the Office of Space Commerce, if they're going to license the on-orbit or in-space part of the activity. But when the FAA asks that payload review, they're going to ask, are there biological substances on board? 
And is there anything else you should tell us that's on board? And so A, as a legal matter, companies get in trouble if they aren't forthright on those forms. And then B, as a policy matter, they get in trouble by not being transparent with the interested community. And so when they announce afterwards that they specifically lied to regulators and surprise, we launched and we launched a dormant organism to a celestial body like that pisses some people off and that causes a government investigation. So I would say being forthright and being transparent. Um, okay, so let's see. Allison, do you want to ask your standard? Yes, I would love to ask my standard question. I hope, Nathan, you're ready for it. My question at the end of every one of these meetings is, if people in this group are excited about your work, which I think you can gauge now from a variety of different questions, what can we do to help you and your specific efforts align? Excellent question. Thank you for asking. So I put all of these interests of mine into the Space Court Foundation. So I'd encourage you to check out spacecourtfoundation.org. The organization we have uh, has two parts to it primarily. The first is training and mentoring the next generation of space lawyers. We want to raise them to practice space law in an open way. And the second is we do primary source research. So we look at primary source documents, research them, try to compile them. And we're actually working on a large project called the Space Law Library, which is a digital archive of all the space-related laws and opinions that we want to put together in one place and then apply machine learning to find patterns in that, to provide language models based on what exists in the law as a source of reference uh, in use for people. And I'll actually be speaking specifically about the Space Law Library at Foresight Space Workshop in June. Well, isn't that a wonderful end to the discussion? Thank you so, so much, everyone, for joining. Again, this Foresight Space Workshop is coming up in June. For those of you who weren't here at the beginning of the talk, there's still some time to apply. We are filling up very fast, actually, but there's some, there's some space. Thank you so, so much. There's still some space for you in this space workshop. So thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, Nathan. This was really wonderful. I'm very glad we got like a legal, legal perspective on this and excited to hear more about this very soon. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Thanks, Bjorn, so much for hosting and for your wonderful question interventions. And yeah, I will see you guys in person soon and for the next virtual meeting. Thanks, everyone. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>